You are listening to Episode 7 of Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 13 Diurnia Orbital, 2358, July 8th Leon Rossett liked having things his way. I gathered that from the way he scowled at me in the morning staff meeting prior to getting underway. We were scheduled to go to navigation detail at 13.30, which would give us all a chance to get a meal before the long process of undocking and pullback began. Accordingly, Captain Rossett called an officer's meeting at 10.00 in the wardroom. I needed to start the required backups four hours prior to undocking, according to the standing orders, so I was up in the main systems closet loading removable media when the captain returned to the ship. I kicked the backup at exactly 09.30 and figured there'd be time to get it to DST's home office after the meeting and before we went to navigation detail. I skinned into the wardroom at 09.50 while everybody was still standing around waiting for the captain to be seated, which would call the meeting to order. He didn't seem to be in any hurry. When I slipped into the wardroom, he was standing on the far end of the room, a mug of coffee in one hand, a big smile pasted on his face. He was chatting up the first mate, and I had to look twice to make sure it was the captain. One of the things that I'd always maintained was that I could tell a clipper captain just by their bearing and attitude. It's not the uniform that makes a person a captain. The captain would be a captain wearing a towel. Crossing to the sideboard to collect my own cup of bad coffee, I thought I might need to reconsider that assessment. He wasn't short, tall, thin, fat. He didn't look particularly young or old. He had all the aura of an accountant, which probably did a disservice to accountants. I had to admit that if he hadn't been wearing the uniform, I probably would not have pegged him as the captain of a solar clipper. That didn't make me feel any better about getting underway, but I was too far down the rabbit hole to back out. As I finished getting my coffee, I saw Mr. Burnside lean over to the captain and say something. His eyes flickered in my direction. The captain turned his head and stared straight at me his brow wrinkling in full-on scowl. I kept my face down, pretending not to notice that I was the subject of his scrutiny, and slowly worked my way to be near my place at the table. I hadn't made it all the way before the captain spoke loudly. He didn't really need to. The wardroom was small, and there were only six of us in it. Well, now that our junior man has seen fit to join us, I think we can begin, he announced, and took his seat at the table. Mr. Burnside sat at the captain's right, while Ms. Manus sat on his left. Beside her, Miss de Groot took her seat, and beside her, a slender man with Cook's insignia took the third chair on that side. Ms. Novea flashed me a quick smile as she sat next to Burnside, making sure to leave him plenty of room, and sliding the chair ever so subtly away from him. I took the last seat across from the cook. Right then, the captain said. You know the drill. Let's get this over with. Manus, he barked. Ship has been fueled. Batteries are charged, fuse actors are hot, and the sail and keel generators are on safety standby. Water and oxygen supplies are full, and surplus waste has been removed according to standing orders and regulations of the base. The ship's engineering division is ready to get underway, Captain, she replied, without looking at him or varying her inflection one iota. She sounded a bit like a robot. De Groot, the captain said. Cargo pod locked and verified. The embargo seals were verified at 0900 according to port regulations and standing orders. Cargo manifest and mass ratings are on file in ship's systems, verified against station records, and tested using the required metrics for accuracy. 
The ship's cargo division is ready to get underway, Captain, she said, just as flatly as Miss Manus. Voorhees, the captain barked again. Ship stores of fresh, frozen, and packed foodstuffs have been inventoried and cross-checked. Expiration date on all foodstuffs have been checked and are within the parameters established by rule, regulation, and common practice. The ship's steward division is ready to get underway, Captain, the man across from me reported crisply. Wang, the captain said. He pronounced it with an A sound rhyming with pang instead of the correct O sound rhyming with gong. The ship systems have been checked, updated, patched, and validated according to CPJCT regulations and local station rules. Communication queues have been flushed in preparation for getting underway. Last port backup is running according to established custom and standing order. System section of the deck division is ready to get underway, Captain, I rattled off. The captain stared at me for a moment. He glanced at Mr. Burnside with a small frown before barking, Nevea. Ship's astrogation sensors have been collimated, and resolution is within CPJCT tolerances. Databases are up to date and verified against station reference. Chart corrections completed. Standard course for break haul has been plotted, verified for ship's mass, and filed with the port authority according to established rules and customs. There are no Aton warnings outstanding for our projected course. We are clear to undock at ship's discretion at or about 1330 hours this date. Astrogation section of the deck division is ready to get underway, Captain. Ms. Novea reported. Mr. Burnside, my captain said finally. All hands present are accounted for. Ship systems are reported spaceworthy and the required forms and procedures have been filed. We have cargo and are cleared for break all according to CPJCT rules and regulations covering ships of our class and size. The ship is ready to get underway, Captain. Thank you, everyone, the captain said. Formalities over, he looked around the table. Mr. Voorhees, "'Can you do anything about this coffee?' he asked with a grin on his face. Voorhees smiled at what was apparently a long-standing point of contention. "'There's not wrong with the coffee, Captain. "'It's dark, it's strong, it's bitter, it's plentiful. "'What more could you ask?' "'The Captain turned his gaze to me then and said, "'We have a new member in our merry band. "'Welcome, Mr. Wang. "'Would you be so kind as to report to the cabin "'after we secure from navigation detail?' "'Aye, aye, Captain,' I replied.' He turned to Mr. Burnside and said, My goodness, he's a nautical little devil, isn't he, David? Mr. Wong is full of surprises, Captain, Mr. Burnside replied. I'm sure he is, the captain said, his eyes tracking back to me. His lips curled into a frighteningly threatening smile. I'm sure he is. The silence lasted for about three very long heartbeats before the captain slapped the table with his right hand as if bringing down a gavel. Good, he said. Company dismissed to final preparations for navigation detail at 13.30. The chairs all scraped as everyone stood. The captain said, David, a moment, please. The rest of us filed out of the wardroom without another word. I dropped my used cup in the tray at the sideboard as I walked out, and Arletta Novea caught up with me on the way up to the bridge to check my backups. Nice job on the report, she said. They expected to trip you up. I figured as much, I said with a quiet snort. How did you know? she asked. I just looked at her. It's standard procedure. It's written up in the standing orders. They just didn't think I'd had time to read them. When did you? she asked, curious. I haven't yet, I admitted. Then... she stopped in mid-sentence, confused. We reached the ladder to the bridge by then. Easy, I told her. I had three reports to go by by the time you got to me. Each was logical, succinct, and all used the same formulaic language. All I had to do was walk through the various items I know I'm responsible for for systems, throw in some of the boilerplate verbiage, and said we were ready to go. 
I have no idea what I'm supposed to report, and I'll bet that when I do get to the standing orders, they'll only say something about getting underway after the appropriate section and division reports have been given. You bluffed? she asked, with an almost laugh bubbling up. Well, not really bluffed. I just figured I stood a better chance by giving a complete report than by sitting there and saying I didn't know what they wanted. She laughed then, the first laugh I'd heard aboard. This is going to be an interesting trip, she said. A very interesting trip. She turned and scampered up the ladder ahead of me, and I couldn't help but notice certain aspects of her personality that I found quite appealing. She had a very nice laugh. Chapter 14 Diurnia Orbital, 2358, July 8th Lunch in the wardroom was strained. The captain presided from the head of the table. Mr. Burnside had taken the first section OOD watch at noon and left me at loose ends. All through the meal, whenever the captain would look at my end of the table, he had a frown. I remembered Captain Chagone's unhappiness when the company put a new crewman on her ship when she wasn't expecting it. The situations weren't identical. I wasn't replacing an existing third mate, but filling an empty berth. The whole thing made my head hurt. What should it matter? Mercifully, lunch was brief. We were served very competently by Davies, one of the few crew I ever saw who wasn't wearing a dirty ship suit. With six of us at the table, she moved sharply to get it all served and then circulated around, keeping coffee and water topped off. Mr. Burnside did not repeat his inappropriate behavior, and I began to wonder if I'd imagined it, if I'd seen something that my eyes misinterpreted because of the angle. Davies hadn't reacted at the time, and she looked no more concerned now. At 13.15, the captain dismissed the mess, and we all trooped up to the bridge. I was last out of the room, of course, and took a moment to put my dishes in the tray. Davies, who was already starting to clear the board, looked startled, but said a demure, Thank you, sir, that wasn't necessary. I smiled and shrugged. Old habits, Miss Davies. I used to be a messman apprentice myself, I told her, and followed the others to the bridge. There was, I confess, a certain frisson of excitement for me to be getting underway as a real third mate. It's not like I hadn't done it a dozen times already as a cadet, but this time I was getting paid for it. It shouldn't have made that much difference, but it did. This wasn't a station on loan to me for the purpose of the exercise. This was my station, my ship. For perhaps the first time since coming aboard, that began to sink in. The captain took his seat in the command chair and nodded to Mr. Burnside. Mr. Burnside said, Call to navigation detail, Mr. Mallory. Mallory spoke softly into the ship's announcer, and I knew speakers around the ship would be calling crew to quarters. The bridge crew looked to be in place already. Ms. Novea was at astrogation, with Ms. De Silva. Ms. Manus was on the main engineering station. And my system's console showed another station slave to hers, which was probably in the after-engine room. "'Take us out, Mr. Burnside,' the captain said. "'Aye, Captain,' Mr. Burnside replied. "'Astrogation, clear us with orbital. Mr. Mallory, signal the tugs, if you would.' Mallory spoke into his mic, and I saw the tugs lashing into our systems in a coordinated maneuver. The familiar schematic of ship and systems expanded to include the two tugs stationed just outboard from the station." Mr. Burnside waited for a tick and added, Prepare for pull-out, Mr. Mallory. Mallory spoke into his headset again, but loudly enough for the bridge to hear. Secure forward locks. Make ready for pull-out. Disable docking clamp interlocks. I could see the repeater on my console as the docking clamps went from the red, indicating locked, to green, showing that they were ready to release. 
Mallory's voice came almost immediately. Lock secure, docking clamps are green, the ship's board is green once, Sar. Mr. Burnside asked, Astrogation? Ms. Novea answered, Astrogation, online and running, ship's board is green twice. I scanned my boards one last time as Mr. Burnside said, Systems, systems are online and running, ship's board is green thrice. I completed the formula. Mr. Burnside turned to the captain and said formally, All boards are green and the ship reports ready for departure at 1330, Captain. The captain said, Log it, Mr. Burnside. Mallory's voice came back with, Log, sir. Make the announcement, Mr. Mallory. Mr. Burnside said crisply, Stand by for pullout in ten. As Mallory gave his announcement for the countdown, I could sense the others around me getting ready for what should be an anticlimax, but which sometimes was a bit more exciting. The tugs took up the strain on the ship as the countdown got to three, not pulling but keeping the ship steady. At zero, the clamps went from green to blank as they released, and I felt as much as heard the familiar clunk from the bow as the ship came loose from the station. Clamps released, Mallory confirmed. Back dead slow, Mr. Burnside ordered. Back dead slow I, Mallory confirmed, and the tugs increased their pull ever so gently as the side of the orbital slipped away from the forward ports. I could feel the ship move under me for just a moment before the inertial dampeners kicked in. The tugs did their job, helping to maneuver the heavy vessel back from the fragile orbital. Carrying as much mass as we did, it would not have taken much to damage the station fatally. While we drifted backwards, I watched the system's data flows. The billy was considerably shorter than the lowest McKendrick, at only 140 meters. The barbell design made up for the difference in length by making the ship twice as wide. In cross-section, the ship was roughly hexagonal, which made for short but wide decks in the fore and aft sections. In spite of the difference in length, the ship was rated at 200 metric kilotons, or nearly five times the cargo capacity of the McKendrick. The Burleson drives were huge, Victor-class models that gave the ship a jump range of four BUs fully loaded. The ship was basically one big cargo hold with engineering and crew spaces strapped to each end. From a design standpoint, it was about as subtle as a brick. The system's data flows were all nominal, and the pullback went smoothly. As we came up on the departure position, Mr. Burnside announced, On station for getting underway, Captain. Log it, the Captain said. Bring us about, and let's get this show on the road. Aye, Captain. Log departure at 2358, July 8th, 1405, Mr. Burnside ordered. Mallory confirmed with a brisk, aye, aye. Departure log at 2358, July 9th, 1405, SAR. Release tugs with our respects. Engines all stop. Prepare to come about. Mallory signaled the tugs, and I saw them release us smoothly, and the system's readouts confirmed the engines had stopped. Tugs released. Engines are stopped, SAR. Ready to come about, Mallory announced. Astrogation, bring us around. Engines ahead one quarter. Ms. Novea replied, thrusters maneuvering to bring us into departure vector. The station swung out of our forward view, and I could see the two tugs heading back into dock as they slid by. Engines ahead one quarter, aye, sir, Mallory confirmed. Then we began the long climb out of Diarnia's gravity well. In another stand, Ms. Manus started winding up the sail and keel generators, and by 1530, the ship was clear of local traffic. Shake out the reefs, Mr. Burnside ordered, and I watched the huge sails billow on my system's display. Nothing actually showed in visible light. It was one of my great disappointments. The sails and keel were insubstantial force fields. 
driven by the sail and keel generators in the fore and aft sections. They were invisible to the naked eye, but to the various field sensors they showed up as huge panels against the background radiation of the universe. The main extended some 20 kilometers and was configured to catch the solar wind from almost directly astern as we pulled up and away from Diurnia's primary. We were climbing up perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic to carve the shortest path to the Burleson limit as possible. Even so, it would be five weeks before we'd be far enough out to fire up the drives and bend space-time. Once the Burleson drives had given us our little hole in space, we'd be another four and a half weeks clawing our way back down into the break-all system. Ten weeks in space, more or less. Then we'd get four days in port. On the lowest, that hadn't seemed like such a big deal. I had an uneasy feeling as I watched Diurnia Orbital fall away astern that ten weeks on the William Tinker might be a lifetime. We are underway, Captain, Mr. Burnside announced. Very well. Secure from navigation detail and set the watch, the captain replied. Please make the announcement, Mr. Mallory, Mr. Burnside ordered. First section has the watch. I saw first section has the watch, Mallory replied. As he made the announcement, a few people swapped places on the bridge, and I watched the ship's status monitors shift. The captain stood then and headed for the ladder. Mr. Wang, at your convenience, he reminded me before descending from the bridge. Aye, Captain, I replied to the empty spot where he wasn't waiting for my acknowledgement. I secured my console after one more, very fast, review of ship's systems. As I crossed the bridge, I checked my tablet to verify that it was slave to the console, so I'd be notified wherever I was on the ship if anything threw an alarm. Arletta gave me a smile as I walked past her station, but Mel was looking grim as she watched me drop down out of the bridge and head for the cabin. As in most ships, the captain's cabin was just down the passage from the bridge. Officer's country was only slightly further. In the crowded confines of the tinker, that distance wasn't far at all. I knocked on the closed cabin and heard, Come in, Mr. Huang, from the other side. I entered and stopped just inside the door. Third mate Ishmael Huang reporting his order, Captain, I said, bracing formally. It wasn't the first time I'd been called to the cabin by a captain. This was one drill I knew pretty well. Come in, Mr. Huang, have a seat, the captain replied, releasing me from the formality with a wave of his hand to a side chair. He still mispronounced my name in spite of having heard me say it. Thank you, Captain, I replied, and took the offered chair. He stared at me with something like a smile on his face. It wasn't a smile. It was too threatening to be a smile. It was more like an expression he'd learned in front of the mirror when somebody told him he needed to look pleasant when dealing with subordinates. It wasn't working for him. I must say, Mr. Huang, you're not what we expected, he began. I wasn't sure how to respond. In what way, Captain? Is something wrong? He stared at me for a moment. We don't usually get people right out of the academy, he said finally. That's a long way for a boot third, I admitted. You got the offer from DST when, he asked. The beginning of May, Captain, just before graduation. A snowball started to build in my stomach. And did they offer you the tinker at that time, he asked, too casually. No, Captain, I replied. It was just a pro forma offer for a third mate on a vessel to be determined at such time as I was able to present myself to the corporate offices in Diurnia. I booked passage on a fast packet and arrived just three days before reporting aboard. He stared at me. Who do you work for? He asked quietly. That question came out of the portside airlock for all I could tell, and I blinked stupidly for a couple of heartbeats trying to figure out what the answer might be. 
Technically, I suppose it's Mr. Maloney since he owns the company, Captain, but I report to you. No, he said. Who do you really work for? His expression had taken on a dangerously flat look. I don't know what you mean, Captain, I said. I work for DST. He stared at me. He seemed to be trying to weigh me or something. You expect me to believe that you've come all the way from Newmar to take a berth on my ship that didn't even exist when the company sent you the contract? I didn't know it would be this ship, Captain, I pointed out, in what I hoped was a reasonable voice. Lots of my classmates got offers from companies in other systems. Federated, Salzman, Coopers, Western Annex. The captain flicked off the names of some of the biggest companies in the business. Yes, Captain, I agreed. Diurnia Salvage and Transport isn't exactly in their league now, is it, Mr. Huang? He pressed. Don't you think it's a bit unusual to have a two-bit operation like DST recruiting months in advance directly from the Academy? I don't know, Captain. This is my first experience in being hired out of the Academy. I never gave it a second thought. The opening was on the boards at the Academy. I applied. DST sent me an offer and a transport voucher. Here I am. Mr. Wang, how many third mates do you think are employed by DST? He asked. I don't know, Captain. Twelve ships, so probably not more than twelve. Exactly four, Mr. Wang. Reviewing what I remembered about DST's fleet, I realized his point. The Damien tractors were notorious for being short-handed. They got underway with barely enough crew to mount two watch sections. The other Unwin barbell and the two Manchester tankers were probably the only ships in the DST fleet that carried third mates. So why did Maloney offer you a job and fly you all the way out here from Port Newmar, Mr. Wang? The captain persisted. I opened and closed my mouth a couple of times before I finally managed to put together any kind of response. I really don't know, Captain. You'd have to ask Mr. Maloney about that. I put every ounce of credibility that I had into it. It helped that I really didn't have any idea. It never even struck me as unusual, Captain. I see, he replied after a moment. We sat there unspeaking for a couple of ticks. I didn't dare move, and he kept examining me as if he could somehow read the answer on my forehead. Very well, Mr. Wang, he said at last. I'll take your word for it, for the moment. But let us be perfectly clear on one thing, shall we? Certainly, Captain. What's that? Out here, I am the captain. I am the law. What I say is the answer. As far as you and the rest of this crew is concerned, out here in the deep dark, I am God. He paused to let that sink in. I do not like to have smart asses, troublemakers, or surprises. I like my universe orderly and predictable. If you have a problem with me, you have a serious problem. He placed a heavy emphasis on the you part of that. In the deep dark, Mr. Huang, what I say will be the final word, and I never have any problems. Am I making myself clear, Mr. Huang? Aye, Captain, crystal clear, I said, my voice surprising me by staying relatively even. We will be watching you, Mr. Huang. Please do not give me cause to take any unfortunate action, he said calmly. I'll do my best, Captain, I tried to sound reassuring. You are dismissed, Mr. Huang. Thanks for listening to Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. The music is a medley of jigs, eavesdroppers, both meat and drink, and Off We Go by Great Big C from their self-titled debut album. 
Find this and other songs by Great Big C at music.podshow.com. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com. Music